Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever had the opportunity to witness to a friend and when you were done walked away and said, Oh, I should have said this. Why didn't I say that? I botched it. Have you ever had the opportunity to witness to a friend and you said, I was so hard with condemning their sins and I did such a lousy job of showing them their Savior. Well, today's text will be tremendous comfort for you because it is one of the great ironies in how a person came to conversion and it shows the power isn't in the prettiness of our words but in God's Holy Spirit. In our text, we find Jesus on the cross. This is recorded in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals hanging there was blaspheming him, saying, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God since you are under the same condemnation? We are punished justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for what we have done. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Amen, I tell you. Today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, here it is, the irony of ironies, this man who becomes a believer. And so our sermon theme today is, don't you fear God? And that's an irony that the gospel he heard was from the mouth of mockers. And it's an irony that one sinner admonishes another. Had we been able to gather together for church today, our passion readings which put together the flow of everything that happened during Holy Week and the death and resurrection of our Savior would have told us a lot more about this man. See, everybody in Jerusalem seems to have heard about Jesus. We don't know how long this man was sitting in jail though. And he admits himself that he deserves what he's getting, so he may have been sitting in the dungeon for a while. However, whether he'd had the opportunity to hear about the miracles Jesus had done or whether this is the first time he heard about Jesus, this is the time he actually gets to see Jesus. And what does he see? A man hanging naked on a cross, suffering a humiliating death. Listen to the good news of salvation in Christ that he heard because he heard it from mockers. The most important one that happens first, I am going to bring up a little later. But in John chapter 19, verses 23 through 24, we're told, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it. Instead, let's cast lots to see who gets it. This was so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Do you know which scripture that was? It's Psalm 22, verse 18, written nearly a thousand years earlier by King David, whom God had promised the Savior would be his descendant. Now, you might not have readily identified and known which psalm this was, but the psalms were the hymn book of the Jewish people. And most people grew up, and remember, they sang them, so as you hear a song over and over again, it just gets branded into your memory. This man on the cross would have remembered growing up singing this psalm. This man on the cross would have probably made that connection. They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Bingo. 
King David prophesied this, and I'm seeing it happen before my very eyes. Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 40 tell us, The people who passed by kept insulting him, shaking their heads and saying, You who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In today's politics and our media, which are quick to lie and take things out of context, we hear the people misquoting Jesus. He had been asked for a sign when he cleared out the temple and he pointed to the sign of his resurrection. See, the temple pointed to the Savior. Every day the sacrifices for sin reminded us that the wages of sin is death, and yet the sacrifice, the innocent victim given in place of the person, pointed ahead to the Savior who would take our sin away. The holiest of holies with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle, which was also the top, was called the mercy seat, in which the blood was poured to atone for the sins of Israel, reminded the people that God is with us, and that God would especially be with us in the Savior, for he would take on human flesh. So when Jesus told them, destroy this temple, he was talking about the temple of his body, the true temple. The other temple was just a foreshadow. And he did rebuild it. He did rise again to Jewish thinking. He died on Friday. He was in the tomb on Saturday. He was in the tomb Sunday morning, and then he rises Sunday morning. So the way the Jewish people reckon time, it was three days. The thief hears the good news of the resurrection through the mouth of lying mockers, bent, twisted to serve their purpose. And then they say, save yourself if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And those people don't know how grateful they would be 50 days later that he didn't come down from that cross when many of them on Pentecost Sunday would ask the apostles, what are we to do? And they told him, repent and be baptized, every one of you, resulting in the gift of forgiveness, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The next message that he hears also comes from mockers. These people were not supposed to be mocking him. They were the ones who were supposed to point the most to the coming Savior, saying, as John the Baptist did, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Instead, Matthew chapter 27, verses 41 through 43 tell us, in the same way, the chief priests, experts in the law, and elders kept mocking him. They said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let me just stop there. Do you realize the confession they just gave? He saved others. The man on the cross would hear that. As Nicodemus told Jesus three years earlier, we know you're from God because no one could do the signs you're doing unless they were sent from God. These people knew that Jesus was from God and worked with malicious hearts and even confessed he saved others, but he cannot save himself. What a confession they give. And yet, in this criminal's heart, something is happening that he begins to say, he saved others, he can save me. Their confession is wrong because he can save himself. As he had said before, he could call on a legions of angels to save him. Instead, he stays on the cross so that he can redeem the world. They continue, if he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him because he said, I am the son of God. Here the criminal will hear the confession, I'm the son of God. And the confession, he is the king of Israel, once again through mockers. And these mockers miss the point 
that God, the Son, became true man so that he could actually be abandoned by God to suffer the eternal torment for the sin that I deserve, that you deserve, that that criminal just as equally as you and I deserve. There's something else about that king, though. Recall, as I said in a previous sermon, that what they looked for was a king who would literally fill David's role and kick the boot of the Romans off the neck of the Israelites and kick them back to Rome and establish a kingdom even more powerful than David's. In fact, that would be one of the strongest confessions that the thief would have of Jesus. Remember when I told you earlier I would hold the first message till later. That is recorded in John 19, verse 19. Pilate also had a notice written and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. As I've said, King David's throne was a foreshadow of the real throne of Christ. Christ is the King of the Jews because he's the King of all creation. He's the King of the real Jews. He's the King of the real children of Abraham, those who trust in him for their salvation. He rules in their heart, which means Jesus' throne is your heart. And as that criminal hangs on the cross that day, Jesus' throne is his heart. Luke 23, verse 36 records for us, the soldiers also made fun of him. Coming up to him, they offered him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Mouths of mockers, ha, 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 call on your army to get you off of this cross. Again, if you think their goal in mocking Jesus was to convert that man on the cross, you're wrong. Every one of them was giving a mocking witness. Yet the Holy Spirit used the mouth of unbelievers. And we'll find out later some of those soldiers will even come to faith. Luke 23, verse 42, our sermon text, reminds us how the Holy Spirit actually worked through the message of mockers and enters the man's heart and the man becomes a believer. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's an irony here. The gospel, the good news of salvation, the good news that Jesus is the Savior is heard from the mouth of mockers. The Holy Spirit enters through unwilling witnesses proclaiming a mocking of his word to enter the heart of that criminal on the cross. And after his requesting, Lord, let me be in heaven with you. In verse 43, Jesus says some of the most tremendous words of comfort given in scripture. Amen, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Don't you fear God? He was confessing a lot. There's an irony that the gospel he heard was from the mouth of mockers, but the Holy Spirit still used it to convict the man of his sin, to convince the man that his Savior was dying for his sins right there on the cross next to him. Now, there's another irony here, and that's how God uses one sinner to admonish another. Again, had we been able to gather for worship in our Passion History reading, you would have heard from Mark chapter 15, the second half of verse 32, those who were crucified with him also insulted him. Notice at this time, not one of them, but those, both of them, are insulting Jesus. Matthew 27 verse 44 tells us, in the same way even the criminals, notice the plural, who were crucified with him, kept insulting him. 
When we put the Passion history together, it seems that the man began the day enjoying mocking Jesus with everybody else and ends his day trusting in Jesus. One of the criminals there was blaspheming him, saying, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, as Luke records it, we're down to one criminal. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Now, to fear God means one of two things. One of them is the law side. And that means we look at God and his tremendous power and all of his holiness and go, I'm but a worm. You're going to crush me and it's what I deserve. But when we know God as our Savior, as our loving Father who sent His Son, as the Holy Spirit who enters our heart, fearing God comes with reverent awe. You could have used that to crush me, but you used your power to save me. In this case, he's admonishing him. One, don't you believe in God? Two, don't you realize that what you deserve? And he says, since you are under the same condemnation, and he gives that confession, we are punished justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for what we have done. But this man has done nothing wrong. Do you catch everything going on in that confession and that admonishment that he gives? One, the pot can't call the kettle black. Two, this man is innocent. You're not. You and I both are getting what we deserve. And notice he includes himself. Three, you should have faith in God. This is an act of God. One, if this man were not the Savior, still recognizing that he's innocent, makes you wrong for condemning him and mocking him. But number two, this is the Savior. You should fear God and have that reverent awe for the Lord. Isn't it the irony? God uses one sinner to admonish the other sinner. Christians often get upset when they're stuck in a sin and God sends another Christian to remind them, you're embracing a sin and you can squeeze the Holy Spirit out of your heart. They turn around, how dare God send a sinner? The answer to that is, well, look at the Apostle Paul. He was condemning Christians, arresting them. God makes him the apostle that will write a major amount of the New Testament. Oftentimes, people, when they hear a Christian come and say, I'm concerned about your sin, and they point out their sin, who are you to admonish me? You're no better than me. Or I've often witnessed to people who they say, I hear Christians condemning sin, and then I turn around and hear them take the Lord's name in vain because it's so blankety-blank and hot or whatever else they use. Ultimately, even today, as our society has ran away, and it's not morality that saves us, it's when we're saved we embrace God's holiness, which shows itself in morality. But as we see even Christians today duped by how unmoral the world has come, turn around when we point out that something is unholy, in other words, that it is a sin, they say, you're being judgmental. And certainly this criminal is an example for us in admonishing one another. He included himself in the condemnation. We're getting what we deserve. If we are pointing out another Christian's sin in an I'm better than you attitude, we have a confession to make ourselves and a sin to repent from. But brothers and sisters in Christ, God uses one sinner to admonish the other. Who better? Who better? When your car is broke down and your neighbor says, my car did exactly the same thing, I know exactly the repair, let me save you because this is all we need to do and your car will be fixed. You're thankful that they've been through it. 
We're thankful that God sends men like the Apostle Paul who can turn around and say in Romans, the sin that I don't want to do, I end up doing, and the good thing that I do want to do, I end up not doing, and can point to the sinful nature. Yes, Jesus, who is perfectly holy, true God and true man, admonished and pointed to himself as the Savior. But brothers and sisters in Christ, he uses you to admonish other sinners because you've been there. Let me use one analogy. I have never struggled with the sin of alcoholism or addiction, and I thank the Lord for that and pray I never do. But you know, when I have had to pastor people who have, I have got the best advice from other brothers and sisters in Christ who have struggled with that addiction. Sometimes the best thing I can do is introduce somebody who's struggling with somebody who has overcome the struggle and get out of the way because they can meet the person where they're at. They understand the struggles. They'll say, we're in this together, and I empathize with you. And so it seems to us an irony that God would use one sinner to admonish another, but he's using somebody who has already suffered the disease to help cure the other disease. And when one sinner admonishes another, the major reason for the admonishment is so they can turn around and announce the good news of forgiveness. And they know how they needed to hear the empowerment that they had a Savior so they'll know how to apply that life-saving word. Yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, I began this sermon asking you, when you've had the opportunity to witness, have you ever thought afterwards, oh, I wish I'd have said this, I wish I would have said that, oh, why was I so condemning of their sins, oh, why wasn't I stronger with the gospel, or oh, maybe even why did I give the gospel when I think they needed the law? This man was converted through the mouth of mockers. The very last thing they wanted to do was to convert somebody else. But the Holy Spirit still worked. That's a comfort to me because I am a sinner God calls to admonish other sinners as you are. And so we see, don't you fear God? Irony that the gospel he heard was from the mouth of mockers and yet he came to fear God, to trust in his Savior and look at him with reverent awe as he hangs on the cross. Irony then that God used one sinner to admonish another, as he does with you and I. Amen. Now may the hope of God fill you with complete joy and peace as you continue to believe, so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, while today's sermon was not directly about the coronavirus, this is a time in which we can still proclaim the word of God. It's a beautiful time in which we can still share it. So let us join together in a prayer to our Lord. Gracious Lord, as the number of infections from COVID-19 increases each day, we ask you to use us to admonish one another so that people practice social distancing and this virus stops spreading. This requires a selfless act from every last person. Therefore, we ask you to move the hearts of all to understand their selfishness when they do not practice social distancing. Move people to remember to practice the hygiene that helps prevent the spread of this virus. We ask you to bless and protect the medical workers on the front line of this outbreak. We thank you for the boldness of Christians like Mike Lindell, who was bold on Monday before national cameras on live TV to remind our nation how easily we have ignored you. But he also reminded us that this time of social distancing and isolation is a good time to return to reading your word. Embolden us to follow such examples, to speak up and to use this time of isolation and sickness to proclaim your life-saving word. 
We thank you for the tremendous medical and technological advances, such as the new kits that will allow even small doctor's offices to test for COVID-19. As medical advisors in our government are advising social distancing past our Easter celebration, we ask you to use this as a time to make us all long more deeply to hear your life-saving word and find new ways of sharing it. Amen.